Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 5, Episode 27, produced by Jesus Centered Resources. What is that, you say? Well, I mentioned this in the last podcast. It's actually nothing right now. It's just an idea. Uh, Many of you know I'm in transition now uh, from my longtime role as a leader at Group Publishing, where this podcast was produced for many years. And um, because of the pandemic, uh, I was one of half of our staff that was let go in the middle of it. I'm sure some of you have had similar painful experiences and that you're in the the awkward in-between right now, as am I. And so I'm exploring lots of new uh, pathways and directions and just keeping my hands open to Jesus and trying to trying to follow him. I mean, it it comes down to that, just trying to follow Jesus right now. And so I have many different paths that I'm walking right now. And one of them is uh, trying to develop a place and a platform for me to develop my own resources and to let people know about training that I'm doing and other ways that I'm trying to give. So uh, I created this temporary name, Jesus Centered Resources, to kind of be the umbrella for all that. And it's not a, not a thing yet. I'm working on it, but um, it's, it's still not up and running. So for the time being, that's what it is. My name again is Rick. I'm a author of about 40 books and curriculums over the last uh, three decades. And I, sometimes when I say that, I think, can that really be true? Is that, and you count them up, yeah, that's almost 40 of them. Um, and the latest of those is last year was released uh, a book called The God Who Fights For You, which is a, uh, a kind of re-edited and refreshed version of a book I wrote about uh, 10 years ago now called Sifted. So The God Who Fights For You is that updated version of Sifted. And it's, it's really a book about uh, where is Jesus and what is he doing when we're going through great challenge and hardship? Uh, what is he doing? That's what that book's about. And the year before that, I wrote a book called Spiritual Grit, which is, um, we had heard a lot about grit in our culture today. Uh, Angela Duckworth wrote a best-selling book called Grit that was based on the research around resilience and, and why are some people more resilient than others. What it left out was that most grit researchers don't really have a lot to say about how to grow grit in someone because growing grit is something that is awkward, uncomfortable, and it makes the, pe- the people you're trying to help grow grit in um, in a place of great challenge. So they, the researchers don't have a lot to say about how to grow grit in someone. They just know it's important. So I realized that Jesus knew quite a bit about how to grow grit in people. And so spiritual grit is an exploration into how Jesus grows grit in us and how we can cooperate and participate with him in that. Uh, before that book, there was uh, the book that sort of launched this podcast, The Jesus-Centered Life. It's a foundational book if, if you're wanting to know what's behind all this that you're listening to, pick up a copy of The Jesus-Centered Life. It will go and take a deeper dive into the foundations of what we're all about here on paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. And of course, I'm general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, which I know many of you listening right now have picked up a Jesus-Centered Bible and and have uh, experienced firsthand how different it is. Uh, There's not another Bible out there like it. It has uh, a host of special features that aren't found in any other Bible, that all of them directing you in a sort of an orbital way around Jesus, no matter where you're reading in the Bible. So, And um, uh, I just finished uh, a couple months ago and am now waiting for the first printed copies to arrive of the new Jesus Center Daily, a daily devotional that will be coming out on October 6th. So uh, I keep promising we're going to do some special things around that. I'll be announcing those things in the next couple of weeks, so so stay listening. But Jesus Center Daily is a daily devotional that is designed to creatively engage you 
in a more intimate relationship with Jesus every day. And that's its purpose. It's, it's really the biggest, baddest uh, writing project of my life. Took two years to produce it. So can't wait to see that come out and tell you more about it. And by the way, last thing here, I've been telling you about my friend, Jeff White, who has an incredible new, I, I call it a story Bible for adults because the stories in this story Bible, this picture Bible are definitely for adults because there's a lot of adult storytelling in the Bible. This project is called Eyewitness. It's coming out in September, right around the corner here. And uh, we're going to be doing something special in the next few issue, uh, the next few episodes of this podcast to sort of highlight Eyewitness. Um, but in the meantime, you can check out the incredible website that's been created for this book. You just go to experienceeyewitness.com experienceeyewitness.com and check out this stunning, amazing book that my friend Jeff has created and uh, in collaboration with artists around the world. The artwork in this, in this very large sort of coffee table book are, is, is extraordinary and Jeff's storytelling is amazing. So experienceeyewitness.com, that's the place to go. So gang, we're now five episodes into a series that I'm calling In His Image. Now, it's hearkening back to the book of Genesis when God says that he, he is creating us, human beings, in his image. And what does that mean? Does it mean that physically we look like God? Well, maybe collectively, physically we look like God. But, but the, the truth about that statement, creating us in his image, is, re- is really has to do with our heart and soul, that we are wired. Our essence is like the essence of God. Um, and after the fall, that essence was smeared and broken, and, and yet we still have so much in us that reflects God's image, God's essence. So in this series, we're exploring what makes Jesus, Jesus. Uh, how is he hardwired? What's his operating system? And how are we hardwired to reflect that in our own lives? And today we're going to explore a fundamental truth that is at the core of who Jesus is and how the kingdom of God operates. It's called trust. So I'm reminded of a proverb that uh, I actually included in the Jesus Center Daily, the daily devotional I just told you about. Um, That proverb was included on the January 6th entry for the devotion. So I love this little proverb so much, and I I just wanted to read from uh, to you from that daily devotional to give you a picture of of the lead-in to this little proverb. So here we go. Um, uh, This January 6th entry is called A Deeper Taste. My daughter, home from college, asked me to wake her at 8.45 for a friend's visit at 9.15. At 9.10, I remembered. (laughs) And she had five panicked minutes to get herself together before the doorbell rang. Her eyes spilled with disappointment. After a lifetime of faithfulness, can our trust be so fragile that even a small failure can diminish it? Well, a proverb reminds us, we gain trust in drops, but we lose it in buckets. We gain trust in drops, but we lose it in buckets. I love that because it spoke to something that I think is so true. It takes a lot of hard work, years and years, to really build trust with people. But one betrayal of that trust can ruin all of that work in a moment. Uh, It's kind of like um, what's happening right now in pandemic land. I really really have such compassion for, let's, let's say, the high school, college, and professional athletes who've invested so much and have sacrificed so much and have worked so hard, and then they find out in a day that because of the pandemic, their season is canceled, or it's pushed off to the spring, or um, it's just not going to happen at all. Uh, So all of that buildup to be able to play their sport can be wiped away in a moment. And that's kind of how trust operates as well. We, we invest so much um, uh, in our relationships to develop that trust. And then one bad day, one bad comment, one stupid action can undermine that trust 
and wipe it all away. So is there something going on in your life right now that sort of proves the truth of this little proverb about trust? We gain trust in drops, but we lose it in buckets. Is there something going on right now that how you've experienced this dynamic where the, the gaining trust has taken so much effort and you've just experienced either someone losing it in you or you losing it in someone else because of something that's happened? Uh, that story that I just told about my daughter, Lucy, asking me to wake her up um, and counting on me to do it. And then I forgot until five minutes before a friend showed up. Um, that, that story is typical of how this sort of thing can happen. Uh, it, it doesn't mean that my daughter can't overcome that uh, because my, her trust in me goes much deeper. But certainly for a while, she didn't really trust me to follow through on little things like that that she asked me to do because I had proven myself untrustworthy in that. It's amazing how the negative side of our trust can really impact us. <clears throat> and the positive side just takes forever to build up. So why is that true? Why is it so hard to build up trust? And why is it so easy to lose it? And can we ever develop maybe what you'd call an unshakable trust in anyone or anything? Or is it just, is trust just too fragile to really ever be called unshakable? Well, let, let's tackle that for just a second. Why is it so hard to build trust? Well, the, in a way, because of our broken humanity, our original sin was really a betrayal of trust. And we've inherited that operating system where trust that was easy and relaxed and, and there was no question about it before. Now everything is up for grabs. Now we have a default lack of trust. And when we're born into the world as little babies, we, we have an autonomic default setting that trusts those around us, but it doesn't take long for us to be disappointed, doesn't it? Does it? When the thing that we expected to happen really doesn't happen. It doesn't take long for that to happen. And uh, as soon as it happens, it starts to undermine our basic trust. Well, Adam and Eve lived in an in a environment, in a place where they had no reason to never not trust God. Uh, they could be wholly relaxed, wholly authentic, wholly trusting, because they had never experienced any break in trust. And then they themselves break that trust. And from that point on, there's consequences. And part of those consequences are pain that, that uh, God reveals to them that life going forward is going to involve pain for you, not as a punishment, but as a, a marker, a, a reminder that you need me. You, you, the, the thing that you, uh, the, the bait that you took, that the serpent offered you, was that you could be like gods. You, you yourself could know and practice right and wrong without, without ever um, depending on God for that. And that really what, that, what the serpent was, was tempting them with is that you don't need God relationally. You just need yourselves. And there's something about that offer that tantalized them into betraying God. And from that point on, God reveals to them that they're going to experience um, pain and challenge in their life. And the purpose of the pain and challenge is to expose and reveal to them that they cannot do this on their own. And when we try to do it on our own, it never works. That our dependent relationship with God is actually a kind of freedom. In fact, it's the essence of freedom to depend upon God. And in order for him to remind us of that, um, he has to remind us of the pain that comes in our lack of trust. So, um, so th this idea that, um, that it's hard to build trust um, is true because of the nature of humanity. Um, we do not uh, easily give our whole selves over to trusting anyone or anything, and we never have. Now, of course, we do build very trusting relationships, but think about, think about what it would take to destroy all that trust. Just imagine for a minute, for instance, if you're married, um, and you have a committed, trusting relationship. Just imagine if you discovered, as I have uh, recently with a good friend of mine, if you discovered 
all of a sudden after three decades of marriage that your spouse um, is ready to move on. And my, my friend heard his spouse say that she no longer felt tethered to him. And I'm not even sure what that means, um, but she no longer felt tethered to him and wanted to be separated from him and eventually divorced from him. So you can be married for three decades believing that you have a trusting relationship and this one act can destroy all of it. It doesn't take much because trust in the end is fragile. So the question of can we ever develop an unshakable trust is a real question. We always feel, I don't know if you, you feel this, but I do, we always feel like there's danger surrounding every trusting relationship, just even at a low level, that there's, there's some kind of danger lurking around the corner. That's fundamental to our human experience. Well, I thought it'd be interesting for us to explore this whole issue of trust and how trust develops and why it develops by listening to a storyline from the very popular sitcom Parks and Rec. Um, now we're gonna listen to just one little storyline. It's about four minutes-ish long from season six of this popular show, Parks and Rec. Um, this is the kickoff episode for that season when the cast of the show, much of the cast of the show is in London, England uh, to do kind of a special episode. So let me give you just a quick overview of the show and the three characters you're going to hear as I play you this little fragment. I'm gonna piece together a couple of different uh, fragments of this storyline from this episode. So Parks and Rec is set in this fictional city of Pawnee, Indiana, where the, the characters in the show all work for the Parks and Recreation Department. And the main character, the sort of the hub of the show, is a character named Leslie Nope, K-N-O-P, <laughs> Leslie Nope. She's, she's played by Amy Poehler, the, the fantastic comedian who uh, had her roots in Saturday Night Live. She's sort of the, the hub, the orbital center of the show, and she's the sort of the high energy, all in, super committed deputy director of this department. Um, she, is, uh, she, she is creative, energetic, She's always thinking the best of others. She's, she never gives up. She's fully committed. She's passionate. Um, she's perky. She's like a force of nature, which can be annoying. And some of the characters are sometimes annoyed by this high energiness and her all-inness. But uh, she's mostly uh, incredibly respected um, by her coworkers. And she's, she works for a boss whose, whose character's name is Ron Swanson. And he's played by Nick Offerman, the award-winning comedian. And Ron Swanson is the polar opposite of Leslie Nope. Ron is an anti-government radical who works for the government. <laughs> and he's a man's man. He loves to hunt and fish and work with wood. And he, he loves to drink single malt whiskey. Um, he, he's a meat eater extraordinaire. He's a, uh, he, uh, he's a deadpan kind of person. He is not passionate, perky, or energetic. Those are the polar opposites of him. Um, and like I said, he's, this, he's a government official who despises government of every kind. And he's a libertarian, really. He hates, uh, he hates the bureaucracy of government, but he hates socialism even more. And so I, I mentioned this first episode is set in London. I'll tell you why in just a second. But um, he ends up going to London with some of the characters. And he hates it because he doesn't want to be in Europe because Europe is, in his mind, just a bastion of socialism. So, so that's Ron, uh, Ron Swanson, Leslie Nope's boss. And then the third character you're going to hear is a character named April Ludgate, played by Aubrey Plaza. She uh, starts out in the show as the, as the Parks and Recs Department uh, intern, and eventually she becomes head of animal control in the Pawnee city government. She is a sarcastic, deadpan hater on the outside. She's, she's a uh, she just, uh, she appears to have a hater attitude toward everything and everyone, but it's really just an act. You, you learn over the course of the show that she has a heart of gold and that she really is passionate, but she just doesn't want to be seen that way. She likes to uh, wear a facade of sarcasm when actually she has a heart of gold. 
And slowly over the course of time, Leslie Nope makes a huge impact on April's life. And April comes to really respect Leslie and all that she is committed to and all that she models for her. So in this first episode, um, April has secretly nominated Leslie for a International Women's Award. Um, and her application is so moving that Leslie wins the award. And the award is going to be presented at, in London, England, in front of a, a, a room of dignitaries. And so Leslie and uh, April and others travel to London for the, for the big award presentation. And uh, as Leslie gets up to accept her award in London, uh, at that very moment back in her hometown of Pawnee, Indiana, there is a movement to oust her from her city councilwoman job. In addition to working in the Parks and Rec Department, she's also on city council. And there's a movement to recall her. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's head scratching, it's unbelievable because of all that she has given to her city that she's being recalled, but she got uh, sort of uh, sabotaged by somebody else on city council and they're recalling her. And so she's very upset with the people of Pawnee. It looks like she's going to lose. So she gets up to accept this prestigious award and she's so upset inside, she ends up trashing the whole town of Pawnee and all the people that live in it. So she's, she's just angry. Her, her anger is boiled over and it comes out in her acceptance speech. So we're gonna listen to this, uh, a couple of these scenes pieced together here. And what you're gonna hear at first is Ron Swanson, her boss, and Leslie sitting on a bench in front of the Thames River. And Leslie has just accepted her award and trashed the city of Pawnee. And Ron is sitting with her on a bench to try to talk through what she's just done. So let's listen to that. And then the, the scene we'll jump to next is April uh, reading to Leslie her nomination letter that she sent uh, that, that uh, got her nominated and then later uh, winning this prestigious award. So that's the scene we'll jump to. Um, so let's start out listening to Leslie and Ron on a bench in front of the Thames River. Here we go. Why are we here? Just thought you needed some fresh air, even if that air is filled with the foul stench of European socialism. You know, I know I am supposed to feel bad about what I said, but I do not. Pawnee has really been pissing me off lately. Leslie, for God's sake, you're the adult here. When your kid screams, I hate you, you don't sink to his level and yell, I hate you back. You have to be the grown-up. You're right. I know. I have to be the grown-up. But it's so hard. Run! God! And nobody ever thanks you. You choose a thankless job. You can't be upset when nobody thanks you. And by the way, April thanked you. She nominated you for this award. Well, April does that all the time. She nominated Anne for Motocross Driver of the Year Award just so she could get a rejection letter. April respects you, and so do many others. Don't start chasing applause and acclaim. That way lies madness. Oh, I almost forgot. I finally got you a proper wedding gift. Part one of many. A train ticket? You think I want to extend my stay on this godforsaken continent? Yes, you do. If you follow that itinerary to the letter, I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Well, I would offer to buy you a drink, but where the hell would that even happen? This is London, Ron. There's a pub over there. There's a pub over there. There's a pub between those two butcher shops. Let's go to that one, but we'll be stopping in those two butcher shops first. And now we skip forward in the scene to April, April Ludgate, reading to Leslie Nope her nomination letter. Here we go. Hey. Hey, are you leaving? Well, I just have to get a jump start on my next phase. Let's see. It is 48 hour roadkill scrape a thon. Okay, well, before you go, I have something for you. I feel like you're getting sad about how stupid and lame people are. And that is my job, not yours. So I'm gonna read this letter to you out loud. But if you hug me afterwards, I swear to God, I'll scream and pull my hair out and maybe punch you in the face, okay? Okay, please sit. Dear award committee members. <laughs> Leslie, 
I didn't even start. Okay, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Dear award committee members, where I live, there are a lot of apathetic people. People who don't care at all about what they do or how they do it. They let the world wash over them and barely notice anyone else is even there. Leslie Nope is not one of these people. She cares about everything and everyone in our town. I don't know how she does it. People come to her with the pettiest, stupidest problems and she cares, like really actually cares what happens to them. And if you're lucky enough to be her friend, your life gets better every day. She spends every waking moment thinking of new ways to make her friends happy. There is something wonderful about seeing someone who has found her true purpose on earth. For some people, I guess that's being an astronaut or a hot dog eating champion. For Leslie, her true purpose on earth, her true meaning is making people's lives better. That's what I love about her. And that's why she deserves this award. Sincerely, Satan. You're getting hugged right now. No, I told you not to. No, stay away! All my life, I have avoided Europe and its multitudes of terribleness. But it turns out, much to my surprise, there is actually one place in Europe that is worth seeing. These tiny islands off the coast of Scotland, where God's chosen elixirs are distilled, barreled, and prepared for consumption. This is worth the trip. Dear Ron, you have now reached the cliff sides overlooking the islands. As you sit here and gaze upon the waters, please read out loud the poem by the great Scotsman Robert Burns. Love, Leslie. Oh, were my love yon lilac fair, with purple blossoms to the spring, and I a bird to shelter there, when wearied on my little wing, how I would mourn when it was torn by autumn wild and winter rude. But I would sing on wanton wing when youthful May its bloom renewed. I don't know what she thought I'd get out of that. All right, there you hear Ron at the end. Uh, obviously, you can't, you can't see the scene. You can only hear it. And what you're seeing as April is reading this nomination letter is Ron's trip, the train ticket and all these elaborate directions that Leslie has given him that he's just taken and left. He has no idea where he's going. He's just following her instructions and doing, uh, go, going wherever they tell him to go. And he ends up on these little islands in Scotland where his favorite single malt whiskey happens to be distilled and uh, produced. And he ends up spending three days there in, in, uh, on this little island in Scotland, hanging out with the people that produce his favorite whiskey and, and, uh, and hiking along the coast of Scotland. And he's just, uh, he's just captured by not only the beauty of where he is, but the beauty of this act that Leslie has offered to him. This, the gift that she has given him is extraordinary. But the, in, this, in these two piece together scenes, what struck me so much about them is that Ron and April both exercise this enormous trust in Leslie. I mean, Ron, Ron gets this little book with these cryptic directions and a train ticket in it. And he's asked to simply follow the directions no matter what. And it doesn't take much convincing for him to do this. She tells him, oh, it'll be worth it if you do this. And he simply accepts it as true and then follows her directions. Why? Why would you do that? Why isn't he more skeptical? Why doesn't he ask more questions? Why does he just start out on his journey? Well, whether or not you watch the, the show Parks and Rec regularly, um, you can infer from someone who does this that Ron has experienced Leslie in such a way that he has a fundamental trust that if she says something is good for him, it's probably good for him that he has a track record of feeling like she really sees him well. That when 
Leslie says something is good, was going to be good for him, she has the sensibilities tuned to what he really loves and desires so well that he can trust that in her. So, well, what causes that? And why would April, who hates everything and everyone, secretly nominate her boss for an international award and write such an eloquent nomination letter? Why would she risk the vulnerability that she hates to to and uh to win to to offer to win this award for her boss and then why would she share the letter with leslie knowing that leslie is going to be moved by this and she doesn't want her to be she doesn't want any affection back um but she knows she's going to get it why would she do it anyway um these questions of why I think are, are very important. And th this, this uh, little storyline from Parks and Rec really fleshes it out so well. Um, so if we ask why, why would Ron trust Leslie so much? Uh, here's some possibilities. If you think about how trust is built in us, um, we tend to trust people and build trustworthiness with people when others keep their word to us or when we keep our word for others. They come to trust what we say and do because we're consistent and perseverant and that they know that they can count on us to do what we say. But deeper than that, we, we trust people when we feel like we have seen and experienced and tasted their heart. We know what motivates their heart. We, we understand what drives their heart. We understand the, the depth and authenticity of their heart. Um, it was like uh, uh, I have people in my life who, uh, it, maybe you've experienced this as well, who all they have to do, I was just telling somebody today, the pastor of my church, uh, when he first asked me to fill in for him and sort of be the, the guest sermon giver one Sunday, uh, uh, and we were just still getting to know each other, and he, but he pays attention to people really well. And so at the end of our conversation where I was saying, yes, I will, I'd be honored to fill in for you on a Sunday, um, I paused and I said to him, you know, um, one thing I need to warn you about uh, ahead of time, and you can, you can rescind your offer if you want to, but when I do this, um, I really, I, I, I don't like it when a sermon is only a one-way communication. So whenever I give a sermon, my sermons are always interactive in some way. I ask questions of people for, that, are, that are in the congregation and I expect them to answer back and I write down what they say and I have them talk to each other. Um, and all of these things are abnormal in a normal church service. So I just want you to know that whatever I do, it's gonna include something like that. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then I probably shouldn't be filling in for you. And he looked at me and he said, Rick, you can do whatever you want to do. I trust you. Well, that was an extraordinary gift of trust to me. And why did he make such an extraordinary offer after only knowing me for a short time? Well, I, I believe the reason is he is uh, very good at paying ridiculous attention to people. And he, after experiencing my heart over a few meetings, decided that he could just trust me with this, that he trusted my heart. Therefore, he trusted me and my inclinations, my, my uh, sort of uh, knee-jerk responses to things. Um, he trusted those and felt fine about giving over that freedom to me. Well, the reason he could do that is because he could see and, and, and appreciate my heart. So when we know a person's heart, even if they screw up, we have shock absorbers in the relationship because we we have a sense of what their heart's really about. And we know that um, uh, that, that person, when they screw up, they're going to find uh, repentance and restoration in our relationship because that's how their heart is. So we develop that sort of trust over time as we dip into and taste and see and experience a person's heart. We also uh, build trust when the people in our lives entrust us. When someone trusts you, or invites you into something like that my pastor did, it tends to uh, reciprocate in us. When somebody trusts us, we tend to reciprocate back with our trust in them. So when we sense someone is persistently for us, again, another expression of our heart, 
when we sense a person is per persistently for us and, and authentically vulnerable with us and invested in the relationship, all of these things are the drop, drop, drop of building trust in our lives. Uh, these things take time. Um, they don't happen quickly unless you're really paying attention. They're, I always tell people that it's not hard to see people's hearts if you're paying attention. Mostly the reason we don't see their hearts very well is we don't pay very good attention to them. If you are paying ridiculous attention to people as you, as you encounter them and, and relate to them, it's not hard to, to capture their essence, to sense what their heart's really all about. I just met with a person for the first time today who uh, heard that I was writing a book about suicide. It's called The Suicide Solution. It'll come out next year, by the way. Um, and uh, he heard on the podcast that I was writing this book about suicide, and he is a suicide specialist in the local school district. And he reached out to me and asked if we could meet. Um, within five or 10 minutes of talking to him, I had a sense of his heart. I was really enjoying his heart. And I had a sense of what he was about because you can experience somebody's essence if you're really paying attention. And, and my trust in him grew rapidly through our hour and a half long conversation because I could see what his heart was all about and it wasn't that hard. So my trust in leaving that meeting was at a high level. I'm actually going to give him my partially finished book and ask him to, to, uh, bring some perspective to it, to react to it, to tell me what he agrees with and maybe things that I'm blind to or what I'm missing. So I'm going to give him my book to read uh, midstream. Well, I wouldn't do that with just everyone, but my experience of his essence in this meeting was that I can trust his heart. So why do, do Ron and April both exercise this enormous trust in Leslie? Because they have, you can, you can infer, even if you don't watch the show, you can infer what they know is that Leslie is a person who always keeps her word and that um, they can see her heart. They've experienced her heart over and over again. They know what she's about. They understand the motivation of her heart. In April's letter, nominating letter, she said that uh, Leslie's driving ambition in life is to make people's lives better. That's what gives her joy. That's April understanding the motivation of Leslie's heart. And that's what um, opens up April's own heart to her. She sees the heart that Leslie has and it's magnetic for her. And she knows that Leslie is persistently for her. Ron knows the same thing. Ron has experienced over and over again how Leslie is for him in extraordinary ways. Like no one else has ever been in his life. She is for him. And that, in turn, um, uh, Leslie receives back vulnerability and investment in her relationships because she has given so much vulnerability and investment in her relationships. So there's a little overview of uh, how trust grows through the portal of a little storyline in Parks and Rec. For those of you who heard a couple of uh, mild curse words there, I apologize I, I hope uh, I hope that your shock absorbers could handle that as well, but um, it's a great show, by the way, incredible show. I never watched it when it was when it was being broadcast, uh, and only now during the pandemic, our, uh, my family and I are binge watching the entire um, seven seasons of the show. So it's a fantastic, incredibly well written show, with um, with lots of moments like the one I just gave you that make me uh, think about Jesus, even though it's not at all about Jesus. So, so let's transition now into taking a look at John chapter 17, which is um, Jesus's prayer to his father right before he heads to the cross. John chapter 17 is unusual in that it's Jesus praying and having an intimate conversation with his father um, and wanting his disciples to hear exactly what he's saying in this conversation. So I'm going to read this all of John chapter 17, the entire prayer. Sometimes if you in your Bible, it might say the high priestly prayer. I'm going to read this in, from the Jesus centered Bible, by the way, that, and that's the new living translation. Uh, you might have a different translation, but I encourage you to, um, after the podcast is over, if you'd like to take a deeper dive yourself into John 17, go for it. Or if you're not driving right now and you want to crack open your Bible to John 17, 
go for it. Uh, again, I'll be reading from the Jesus-Centered Bible, which is the New Living Translation. Now, keep in mind that Jesus is about to be tortured and crucified. He's about to take on the sin of the world, and that means he's going to be temporarily separated in relationship with his father for the first time in no time. Um, that alone is the most excruciating thing that is going to happen to him. And he knows this is coming down the pike. And I want you to think about how trust plays a central role in the plan of redemption for, of mankind that Jesus will be talking about with his father. How does trust play a central role in this plan? And then the second thing I want you to be thinking about as I read is the, to think about that the disciples are supposed to hear this conversation between Jesus and his father. Jesus wants them to. So how and why would this sort of intimate prayer that they're overhearing, how would it influence their trust in Jesus? So let's go ahead and start reading John chapter 17, starting in verse, uh, starting in verse 17. Oh, I, I'm sorry, starting in verse 1. After saying all these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. So here he's speaking to his father, and he's referring to himself in the third person, of course. So he continues, um, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I have revealed to you the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you, for I've passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it, and they know that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. So my prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me. So bring them so, so that they bring me glory. Now I'm departing from the world, and they are staying in this world. But I'm coming to you. Holy Father, you've given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name, so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost, except for the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. Now I'm coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world so that they'd be filled with my joy. I've given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. I'm not praying. I'm, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for those who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they'll all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me, and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you've given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me, because you loved me even before the world began. Oh, righteous Father, the world doesn't know you but I do, and these disciples know you sent me. I've revealed you to them, and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. I love this. this is my favorite line in this, in this prayer. I, I love this line in verse 24 when he says, Father, I want these whom you've given me to be with me where I am. Such an intimate, um, vulnerable act of trust. He wants these broken, messed up people to be with him forever. That means you and me too. He sees us completely. 
but loves and delights in us so much that he just wants us to be with him for eternity. That's how much he enjoys us. And it's not an act. It's not a religious thing he's talking about. It's a relational thing. He loves us and, and wants us above all else to be with him forever. So how and uh, how does trust, the question is how does trust play a central role in the plan that Jesus is revealing here? This plan of redemption that's been in the works for forever, literally, how, how does trust play a role in this? Well, there, there has to be a trust between Jesus and his father in order for this plan to work. Both have to trust one another, right? So the father is trusting Jesus to do something unbelievable, which is not only the physical torture he's about to go through, but the relational torture he's about to experience. He has to trust his son to persevere, to carry through with the plan, to not waver from it, even though it is frightening to its core to think about. The father has to trust his son to carry out the plan. And the son has to trust his father that on the other side of those three days of darkness, he will be resurrected into life. The, re the relationship he has with his father will be reconnected and restored for eternity. That, that the darkness that he descends into over those three days will be temporary, not permanent. That, that the separation that he experiences from his father will be survivable for him. That the physical torture he's about to go through, that he will be able to persevere to the end through that. In so many ways, Jesus must trust his father also to, to carry out the plan. The, the whole plan is based on mutual trust. And, and if at any point that mutual trust breaks down, we don't have freedom. We don't have redemption. Our whole freedom rests on whether the father and the son trust each other in the end. Now, why do they trust each other? Because they know one another's hearts. Jesus over and over again is trying to reveal to his disciples the heart of God because they have developed over the course of uh, centuries and millennium a impression of God's heart that isn't always accurate, um, which makes sense because we're trying to relate to a God we can't see. So we have to fill in the gaps. And the people of God over time have filled in the gaps and now experience God's heart in a way that is not consistent with what Jesus knows it to be. So Jesus comes not to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. And Jesus comes to reveal the heart of God. Jesus says, if you've experienced my heart, you've experienced the heart of God. So get to know my heart. And, and because Jesus knows his father's heart, his passion is to invite others into the truth about that heart by asking us to pay attention to his own heart. When you know his heart, we know God's heart. And in turn, God knows the heart of his son. He knows that his son is not only um, passionate enough and perseverant enough and committed enough to carry out this plan, but that his love for him will, will do it no matter what. And of course, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says, if there's another way, please take this, take this cup away from me. But if there's not, then I'm going to do it. Um, so God's trust in the heart of his son and the heart of Jesus is, is ironclad. And it's lived out in the garden where Jesus says, I have my doubts, but I'm going to do it no matter what, because I love you. So in a way, Jesus in this prayer is reassuring himself of the plan, reassuring himself of what he knows about God and his heart, reassuring himself of what the mission has always been about, reassuring himself that this is the direction he has to go if redemption is going to be possible. He's reassuring himself of his trust and we need these reassurances of our trust in God, especially right now in the middle of all of the issues and challenges and doubts and pain that we're facing in the midst of a pandemic and in the midst of a racial unrest in the midst of climate change and all of its impacts on our uh, around the world in the midst of political division all of these things are pressuring our trust and 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 uh, it, uh, kind of testing our trust in so many ways we need to remind ourselves of what what is true and good about about the heart of Jesus 
we absolutely need to remember in the midst of our challenges what is true, true like bedrock in the heart of Jesus, that the truth we've already experienced in him. And so we, like Jesus, must reassure, reassure ourselves all the time of God's good intent in our story. Um, and and the, the, the place that this trust comes from is our experience of the expressed love of God in our lives. Uh, we, we very easily can remember times in our life when we felt alone and isolated and sort of abandoned by God. But do you ever take account of the everyday ways that God is graciously, humbly, silently giving to you in over generous ways? Do you ever take account or inventory of the many ways that God has expressed his love for you in your life? And trust comes out of that expressed love. So not a bad idea to maybe at the end of every day, do a mini inventory of the many ways that God has loved you, as Jesus has expressed his love to you during the day. Because out of that comes the fruit of trust when we remember that expressed love. And last, uh, how is trust really uh, embedded in this plan of redemption? Well, vulnerability is required from both sides in this. In the Trinity, they have created a plan to redeem us that requires mutual vulnerability amongst the three members of the Trinity. And trust can never grow without vulnerability. Um, it's the, it's, it's the, the fuel of, of trust is vulnerability. So the only way that we feel safe and relaxed being vulnerable is when we trust the heart of the one we're being vulnerable to, right? We don't feel safe if we can't trust the heart. So really our whole mission in life and the mission of this podcast is to taste and see more and more, inch by inch, the heart of Jesus, to see the goodness and experience the goodness of the heart of Jesus um, in, in reality, not just to talk about that goodness, but to describe our experience of that goodness. When we do, trust results. So the second question is, the disciples are listening into this conversation. They're supposed to hear this conversation. What are they hearing that uh, produces trust in Jesus in them? Well, first of all, Jesus is saying to his father that he's going to entrust this message and this mission to those disciples. He's, he's telling his father, I plan to give them this mission because I'm leaving and coming to you and then the mission is theirs. They're going to live it out on our behalf. He's giving them incredible trust. And as I said before, when we're invested with trust, trust is our response to that. So he also has to trust that his disciples are going to trust him because he's about to leave. And he knows that they're not going to have him around anymore to ask questions or guidance, give guidance or to uh, do the things that Jesus was doing through his three-year public ministry. He's not going to be there. So he's also entrusting his disciples to trust him with, those, with this mission. Again, a, a powerful thing. The, uh, Jesus is about to plunge his disciples into a fog bank. Have you ever been driving along a road? and uh, maybe early in the morning or in the evening, and you see a fog bank coming up, and when you enter into it, you can't see even a few feet in front of you. So you slow down, of course, but your trust kicks in then because you maybe you've driven this road many times and you know where it goes. You know it's straight during this stretch of time or there's no curves in it. Um, but at the very least, you trust the direction of the road that you're on uh, to make your way through the fog. And when you come out on the other end of the fog, you can see again. You can steer your own car again. But, but when you're in the fog, um, your trust is heightened. And Jesus knows that we're going to go through a fog bank, uh, many of them over the course of our life, where we can't see for ourselves how to steer. And it's in the fog bank that we need to trust him the most. And he knows his disciples are about to enter into the mother of all fog banks, and he's trusting them to trust him to keep going through the fog bank, to not stop, but to keep going. This is really, I don't want to call it the test of our trust, 
but it's the experiential um, laboratory for our trust. When we go into the fog bank, will we trust his heart or not? It all comes down to that. Because when you can't trust your circumstances and you can't trust the transactional relationship you have with Jesus, where uh, if, you, if you do all the right things, you expect him to do all the right things back to you. When, when that doesn't seem to be working very well and you're in the fog bank, what do you rely on? The only thing we can rely on is his heart. Have we tasted goodness in the heart of Jesus? Do we understand how for us he is? Does he keep his word? Does he know our heart? Does he understand our motivation? Is he persistently for us? Has he been vulnerable already with us? Is he invested in us? These are the things that carry us through the fog banks in our life. And if we have very little of that experience, we won't have much to, to, to rely upon or draw from when we're in the middle of that fog bank. So taste and see the goodness of his heart over and over again. Go back, uh, go back into John 17. And ask yourself, what is true about the heart of Jesus in this conversation he's having with his father? Get to know his heart. And then, um, and then experiment with his heart. Experience him. Ask him for things, but don't just ask. Wait for him to respond. Be conscious of his presence in your life through the day. Jesus is saying to his father, I know you, father, and they know me. So therefore, they know you. This is how we come to trust the heart of a God we can't see. When we come to trust the heart of Jesus who we can see, we can trust in the fog bank. And in the end, what Jesus is inviting us into through all of this, uh, through all of these trust exercises, he's inviting us into intimacy. Intimacy is the end game for Jesus. This is really what he wants in the end. The reason we go through fog banks in our life is so that we can develop the kind of trust that produces the fruit of intimacy in our relationship with him. Because this is when Jesus says, I want them to be where I am for all eternity. What he's really saying is I want intimacy in my relationship with them. So I have to send them out into their fog bank so that they will learn to experientially trust me when they can't steer their own car and have to rely upon me to steer for them. That's what I want. I want them to develop a sensibility of trust in their relationship with me. You know, to close off here, usually we give, when we pray, we're essentially giving Jesus tasks that we want him to complete for us, right? We, we tell him our bucket list of things we would like him to do for us. And we base our trust on how he comes through with that bucket list, right? Well, honestly, when we do that, it's, it's, it's not that he says, don't do that. He does ask us to bring all of our stuff to him and he wants us to. But if our conversation with Jesus is only about our bucket list, it's, it's a little bit arrogant for us to say, or maybe a lot arrogant for us to say, here's my bucket list. And if you don't come through, I'm not going to trust you. So let's, let's upend that a little bit. Let's pause and ask Jesus what he wants us to trust him for right now. Let's ask him what, uh, what he wants us to trust him for in our life right now. Instead of presupposing what that is and giving him our bucket list, let's ask him, how does he want us to trust him right now? So I'm just going to pause for just a second. And I want you, whether you're driving or listening elsewhere, just ask this simple question of Jesus. Ready? Here we go. And there's going to be some quiet after this. And I just want you to listen to see if, if you sense what Jesus is saying back to you. So here's the question I want you to ask him in the quiet. Jesus, what do you want me to trust you for right now? Jesus, we want to hear your voice. So please tell us, show us, what do you want me to trust you for right now? We'll pause and be quiet. All right, whatever popped up for you, maybe a word or a phrase or a picture, um, make sure you write it down, honor it. Um, and if that wasn't enough time for you, go back to that question and take a longer time of quiet. Jesus, what do you want me to trust you for right now is the question. If that wasn't enough time for you, go back in a quiet time and ask it again and just wait, wait as long as you need to. 
Um, and then once you sense something back from Jesus, the exercise of our trust is to do something about it. So whatever that is, coming back to you, do something. Act on that trust, whatever it is. All right, gang. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, Season 5, Episode 27. Uh, if you want to explore links to any of the things I've talked about today, head on over to PayingRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Look for Season 5, Episode 27. Click on it. You'll see uh, links to everything I've talked about today, including Jesus Center Daily that's coming out in October and Eyewitness that's coming out in September. Head on over there to check that out. Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus is a podcast produced through ricklawrence.com. So you can head over to ricklawrence.com and learn more about what uh, the stuff that I'm into right now, um, if you want to. But the, the podcast is now produced um, out of my website. <laughs> you can subscribe to us, by the way, on Google Play or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And gang, we'll talk again next time. <laughs>